I'm Wes Denning, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, here's your host, James Whitaker. Hey, winners. Welcome back to Win the Day, where we sit down with some of the world's true changemakers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode comes from French poet Victor Hugo and says, nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Joining us in the studio is a good friend of mine and a legend in the entertainment world, Wes Denning. Wes grew up in Brisbane, Australia. Before a stint in the Big Brother house gave him a taste of television, today he's an award-winning entrepreneur, producer and content creator. Wes has developed, sold, and produced critically acclaimed content for an array of media platforms and grown content businesses all around the world. As founder of production company WDE, Wes has developed programs that are broadcast in more than 50 countries, including Big Crazy Family Adventure, The Stafford Brothers, and The Flying Winemaker. In 2016, he joined Eureka Productions, where he has since executive produced shows like Dating Around on Netflix, Finding Magic Mike on HBO Max, and Crikey, It's the Irwins on the Animal Planet. Wes also produced the miniature golf show Holy Moly alongside three-time NBA champ Steph Curry, which debuted as one of the most watched new series premieres on US television. In this episode, we talk about the three attributes that underpin Wes's success, how to prepare for a successful pitch in your business, the most thrilling moments from his television career, and how a kid from Australia made it to the helm of TV production in the US. Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. And if you want access to episodes like this one as soon as they're released, make sure you hit that follow or the subscribe button. All right, let's win the day with my good mate, Wes Danny. Wes, great to see you, buddy. How are you? James, great to be here. Thank you for that introduction. It was really, really sweet you'll and need, really well thought out. You'll need to update your corporate bio now to include the Win the Day, the Win the Day podcast. Absolutely. And I like how you said produced Holy Moly. We're still producing Holy Moly. That show's going to go on forever. Present forever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. the sign of a good TV show, one that goes on forever. Exactly, exactly. Mate, it's great to be here and that was really nice of you to pull out some of those credits and... Uh, I love the shows that I make. I really do. Yeah. And, and I'm very passionate about them. So it's nice sometimes just to sit back and listen to the ones that, you know, we've spilt blood over and the <laughs> ones that we love and some are tougher than others. But it's nice to uh, just to take a moment and, and you know, enjoy some of those titles because there's a lot of memories there, that's for sure. A lot of things go on behind the scenes for 22 minutes or whatever it is of finished footage. It's so true. I mean, even last year, you know, being, a, you know, a year dealing with COVID, like, it just makes television production harder. Like, you know, we had one show. Shows are fun to make generally. Like television's great fun. And with COVID, like one show, we spent two months in a hotel in a bubble making a show about male strippers (laughs) (laughs) uh, in Las Vegas in the middle of summer during Delta. And it was actually really hard. But the product is great. So, um, you know, so you know, TV, we do have a lot of fun with what we do. It's hard. You know, you have such an exciting, dynamic life, but it's also you've also got a wife and three kids. It's tough yeah. to be on set and on location yeah. all yeah. around the world for, for months and months at a time. It's yeah. a, a tough thing you deal with. Yeah, definitely. And I find I have that balance where I try and keep my weekends sacred and there are times during the week where I'll disconnect from work to do something with the family. But it, the reason I do that is because then the next – Thing I know I might be away for two months or three months, you know, in about two weeks time, I'm off 
you know, in the Mediterranean for four weeks for a shoot. And, um, you know, there'll be another time where I have to go away for six weeks. Um, you know, I've done stints of six weeks in Antarctica, mm. big crazy family adventure, 96 days on the road, nonstop, you know, finding Magic Mike, two months in a hotel in Las Vegas. So some shows you come and go, some shows are based here in LA, yeah. but um, a lot of shows, you know, you're required to go away for a period of time. And speaking of iconic TV shows, you had Big Brother back in the day was yeah. your first foray into the television yeah. world. Yeah. How, take us into that moment. How, how thrilling was that at the time? It was exciting. Like I, I was living in London when I was 18 and when I came back to Australia, it was my mum's idea. She said, oh, they're auditioning for Big Brother. You should put in a tape. I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do it. What the hell? Why not? And I hadn't really watched the show, but I knew how huge it had been in the UK. And, um, and in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, this could be a great way to get some entry point into television. And um, I did a tape and at the time I think they had like 14,000 people apply and, and, and it's funny and, 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 you know, did the finals and then got in the show and it was, it was great. And, I mean, I can look back now, it's been 20 years. <laughs> well, not 20 years, it's been 18 years since I did that and I was 20 at the time. And it's almost at that stage now where, like, it's a great sort of nostalgic sort of throwback, <laughs> but it still carries, you know, wherever you go to some extent. So People um, still remember you as well. They like, do, yeah. yeah. It's, really, it's really sweet. In yeah. fact, I just had a call from my mum recently who was telling me about, she was telling a story about me and everyone's like, they remembered me from Big Brother, which is really, really <laughs> sweet. It's amazing how at that point in time, like reality and television in particular in Australia in mm. 2004 was such a, like, a touch point for yeah. A lot of people and, um, yeah, I have fond memories. It's one of those things, like I remember the house and the experience being very boring, mm. but I actually didn't understand how television was being made yeah. or it was made then at all. I didn't have a clue. Different so, story now. Different story now for sure. A lot of people want to get that career in entertainment, but they're a loss as to how to even start. How did you get a foot in the door in the TV world that led to all the things that you've been able to do? Yeah. So the truth is after Big Brother, it was a huge profile or platform, I should say, and there was a show on Australian TV called Totally Wild and it had been on forever as a legacy program and it was on 48 weeks of the year, four afternoons a week. And they actually produced it out of Brisbane, which is where my hometown is. And, and after Big Brother, I was fortunate enough to meet a, 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 the executive producer of the show. It was a guy called Jeff Cooper and I met him at an event or a function and he probably shouldn't have done it, but he gave me his number or his card, <laughs> one of the two. And I just started calling him up. And I was like, Jeff, I want to work on Totally Wild. You know, would you consider having me on to do a couple of episodes? And he was very polite. And then I kept calling him and I kept calling him and he stopped taking my calls. <laughs> and as soon as his assistant would take the calls, hey, Wes, nice to hear from you. And I probably called three or four times. Her name was Kate and she's amazing. She's still a friend. And then eventually the call came back and they said, hey, we're willing to have you come in for two months. It's going to be unpaid and we'll have you on two days a week. I said, done, I'm in, like no problem at all. And I actually started coming in five days a week. I just came into the office every day. And if I wasn't working on a story, I'd write scripts, I'd pitch my boss, I'd, I'd, I'd try and help out. I just wanted to be part of the environment and to learn. And, uh, and after six months, oh, sorry, after two months, I was offered a six-month talent contract on camera. And then after that six months, it became like a producing contract. And so when I was at Network 10 in Australia as a 21-year-old, I was there for five years. I was very, very fortunate because it's where I learned how to make TV. So we, you know, every day I'd be making stories for Totally Wild, writing scripts, going in the field and shooting them with one camera, coming back to an offline machine where I'd do a paper edit, going in with the editor to make the three or four minute segment that would go into the show every night or every afternoon. And in that time, I got to do, you know, 
Totally Wild, which was a travel adventure show. I got to do live news. I got to do New Year's Eve live telecasts. I got to do sports programming at 10. I got to do three different documentaries at 10. Um, and then I got to, I developed and produced a series on life in Antarctica and spent six weeks living in Antarctica. And that series did extremely well. So I'm, I, I'm so grateful that, you know, I didn't make a lot of money in that time, but that's where I learned how to make TV. So it was those early years of just grit and persistence and belief. So many good lessons there, even in terms of giving. A lot of people, I feel like they are focused on what can I get yeah. from this company that yeah. I want to get, and they yeah. feel like they owe them something. But yeah. you were willing to leave ego and all that stuff aside yeah. just to say, what can I do to serve you with what they're doing? Yeah. And look, I, like everyone has a bit of an ego. I've got a bit of an ego. We all do to some extent. So I was on camera at the time, and of course I loved the fact that I was still doing work on camera. I was willing to learn. Like I, I, I had to learn the, the business of TV. and I, uh, Sorry, not the business, how to make TV. Yeah. And I remember, you know, some fond memories are being in the middle of small town Australia and after shooting all day, you know, cameras similar to the ones that we're using today. Oh, actually, no, they were much bigger. But, you know, after shooting all day, we'd sit in the motel room, crack a beer, and myself and our cameraman, who was in his 50s or 40s, like really great operators, we'd plug the camera into the TV and we'd just sit there and watch everything we shot for the day and sort of like, oh, does this work? You know, how can we do it better tomorrow? So, like, it really was sort of mooching off these pros in the industry and learning how to uh, produce. What was it about production that you liked more than sort of being the host of a show? It's a good question. When you are the host, like, you very are, very much are at the mercy of someone else, you know? Like, if you, you know, think you might be the perfect person for a program for whatever reason, it's ultimately not your decision. You know, they might want a female or they might want someone that's got a certain accent. And there's certain things about, yourself or myself, obviously we can't change. So what I love about production is that I get to create the narrative. I get to create the story and I get to bring it to life. And that was a big part of, you know, why I got into, you know, after Channel 10, you know, I wanted to be creating shows. I wanted to be selling shows uh, and I wanted to be making them. And making them is really tough. Like it's, it's extremely hard. But what I learned from Channel 10 was, that series on life in Antarctica, they distributed to, say, 20-odd countries around the world. And I was like, oh, great, when do I get, you know, when's my paycheck come through for that? And they're like, well, what do you mean? Like, you're in-house talent. And it was that moment for me where I was like, oh, okay, I actually don't understand the business of television. I didn't understand IP. I didn't understand how copyright works. I didn't understand who owns the program and who doesn't. And so I've always had a fascination with that. And in 2008, I moved to New York and with, you know, big dreams. I wanted to learn the business of TV. I wanted to make shows in the US. I didn't know a single contact. It was so naive. I was 25. I decided to move to New York and I was going to make it in America. And, and honestly, I bought a book on the business of television. I've still got it. Huh? And I just <laughs> sat there and like and read it. I was like, okay, how do all of these things work? And just started absorbing as much literature as I could. Must be a good book. It's a good book. Yeah, yeah. Well it still holds it. up. It still holds up. <laughs> And like a lot has changed in the media industry since then. So a lot of it doesn't hold up, mm. but it was my first entry point into like, okay, let's, um, you know, how do, how, do, how do I really make TV and yeah. not just be a cog in the wheel? You had a lot of success in Australia. Was it always a dream to move to the US? And how did you let go of the good life that you had there in pursuit of what might have been a greater one on a, obviously a grander scale with the size of the US market? You know, that's a good question. And the truth of it is it's partly timing and relationships, mm. right? Like I, I have an amazing wife who, you know, Michaela was my girlfriend at the time. And we were considering, I was, I was actually at the time leaning towards moving to London, 
because two of my best friends were moving to London and it's very common for Australians to do a gap year in London or a couple of years, I should say, in London. And I'd met with the BBC in London and they knew about my work in Australia and there might have been like an entry point to go and do a show at the BBC and I had connections at Channel 4 in the UK and at ITV. And so I was leaning towards like I can see how I can make a career in the UK. And my wife, Michaela, who was my girlfriend at the time, she, for whatever reason, loved the idea of going to New York. And I love New York as well. I've been there before and I absolutely love the city. So we just were like, stuff it. Like, let's go to New York City. Like, let's go against the grain. Like, yes, our friends are going to London. And we love London too, but we just felt like it was more of a challenge and, um, and just something totally different. So, yeah, we, just, so we literally picked it on the map and naively decided to move there. And we thought, oh, we'll have a hotel for a couple of nights and we'll find a place. Like we ended up through a friend of a, a friend of mine from primary school, knew had some cousins in Long Island, and we ended up living with them for six weeks until we get our own place in New York. Amazing. You mentioned like relationships and networking there. Is there a process that you went through to to get good at creating and, and maintaining those relationships once you moved to the US? I've always been pretty good at networking and and relationships, but I just when I moved, like my one goal was like I had one contact um, who knew an agent. Who, and that agent was in LA. The agent was happy to take a meeting with me. And I went in there and I like sold myself as like, you know, here's all the shows that I've worked on in Australia. Here's what I want to do in the US. I want to host, I want to produce, I want to build a company. And for whatever crazy reason they decided, they believed me and they signed <laughs> me up. And so this agency signed me up for like a 12-month or a two-year contract. And that allowed me to stay in the US, but also they, um, it, they actually were my sort of conduit to starting to meet people in the industry. And it wasn't that they put me on shows or sold me into shows straight away, but at the time, you know, I got to meet people at HGTV, at Food Network, um, at CNN, at Travel Channel, at Discovery. And it was instead of me just, you know, knocking on doors, it was like, you know, a nice intro, like, hey, I'd love you to meet Wes Denning. He's just moved to New York. He's an Australian producer and talent. Like, and, and, and then I started using those entry points. And I also got to meet production companies, like production companies that are still around today who obviously are what I do now, they sell and produce shows to networks, but I got to meet the production community in New York City too. It's a great reminder that out of all of these amazing shows or different businesses and things that are getting around, there are people out there who make these decisions. So if you can get yeah. to the people, yeah. I feel like so many people, they, they're worried about, they're, they're so focused on what can I do to have the best cold approach. Yeah. But you and I, we we're so focused on let's create the relationships that yeah. lead to a warm approach where everything else opens up from there. So true. Like in the media industry, people are always like, how do I get an agent? I need to get an agent. And I love agents. Like some of my agents are some of my best friends here in the US. People think they'll get an agent and I'm going to sell a show. I'll pitch it to my agent. Agent's going to send it to the network. Oh, my God, we're going to make millions of dollars. But the reality is the agent's a very important part of the industry here in the US in film and television and literature as well. But it still comes down to the product. It always does. Mm. And the relationship. So, like, mm. you have to have a great idea. You have to have a great world that you're pitching instead of, you know, it's not just it's not just having a contact with an agency that's going to get you that next big show. When you created WDE, how are your own production company, how did that feel at the time? It was great. Yeah. Like, WDEs, you know, we started in New York City. We also have WDE in Australia. And, you know, it's funny. My friends always give me a hard time because... <laughs> I actually started developing shows that just doing things that I really enjoyed. <laughs> so the first show that we sold was the Stafford Brothers and we sold that back to Fox 8. And I was just laughing about it yesterday. Like, thank goodness no one pulled back the curtains on WDE at the time <laughs> because I was 27. 
and I sold a six-part series to Fox 8 in Australia. And thank you very much for taking that leap of faith in me. <laughs> but, like, I sold it out of a one-bedroom apartment in New York City. <laughs> like, there was no big office and, you know, anything like this. And for whatever reason, they they committed and decided they wanted to make the show. And we had a great time slot. There was this after American Idol on Australian TV. And the series followed the life of these two DJs, the Stafford brothers, mm-hmm. who travelled around the world. And, and the quest of the series was they want to be the world's number one DJ. Mm-hmm. So they were involved. Their manager was involved. One of their – Matt's girlfriend, Brooke, was a big part of the cast. So it was very much this ensemble team of four following their journey. And then the next series we sold was called The Flying Winemaker with another mutual friend, Eddie McDougall. And that series um, we sold to Discovery International and it's now on Netflix and – it was hugely successful, but it was a food and wine show. So we traveled 13 different regions throughout Asia, <laughs> pairing Asian food with Asian wines. And then, you know, Big Crazy Family Adventure, again, was another amazing travel series. So I, I sort of lent into things that I, I, I thought I would want to make and people would find enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, shout out Bruce Kirkby. He was on the show on episode 36. What What are some of the most thrilling moments you've had going around the world, not just for WD, but maybe for things you've done with Eureka as well? Like is, is there anything that stands out? You know, you've been to Everest, you've been to all of these, these different countries. Anything that's so memorable or that you really just reflect on today is like, wow, that was a cool experience? Yeah, I have those moments sometimes. Mm. I've been really lucky. Mount Everest, 100%. I remember for Big Big Crazy Family Adventure, for the final part of the journey, we spent about seven days hiking to this remote monastery in Ladakh in the Indian Himalaya. And we had about 50 donkeys that were carrying all of our production gear. (laughs) And I remember looking back going, wow, this is something. Like how often do you have donkeys carrying all of your gear and that many of them? So definitely that is a a journey that was amazing. Um, To be honest, I was just in Athens we're doing a show for CBS and Network 10 called The Real Love Boat. Mm. We're, you know, taking that amazing series from the 70s and 80s, The Love Boat, and we're making, turning it into a dating series. And, and just being in Athens again and being back in Europe after a couple of years of not traveling so much was thrilling and I'm really exciting, excited to spend some time in the Mediterranean making that series coming up. Antarctica, mm. absolutely. I mean, you know, I've lost the photos, which I'm really gutted about, but I spent six weeks living in Antarctica. I'll never forget one time. Because in Antarctica, there really aren't any roads. And we went from the base, a helicopter flew us to this sort of remote area where there was a colony of Adelie penguins. And the helicopter dropped us off and he said, hey, I'm going to be back. Oh, no, he said, we'll be back tomorrow to pick you guys up. And we were just on a big ice sheet and there was rock around as well where the penguins were. And we spent the afternoon filming them. And because it was summer, the sun never really went down. We had our sleeping bags and our bivy bags and some food. And so once we would finished shooting the penguins... We then rolled out our swags, you know, got into our sleeping bags, had a little bit of red wine there, had a little glass of red <laughs> or two. I just remember looking around, it's like, we're in the middle of Antarctica yeah. on our own. Helicopter doesn't come back till tomorrow. Sleeping on the ice. Like, how cool is that? Surreal. Like, yeah. it is surreal. I'd love to go back and do some of those things. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been been very, very blessed. If you're a business owner and want a copy of the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast, go to mistakes.wearepodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. It's a free download and we'll show you everything you need to do to start getting a massive ROI from your podcast so you can help a lot more people, get recognized as the authority in your industry and scale your business faster than ever. All right, let's get back into the fun. Because we like to keep it pretty real from a mental health perspective on this show. Were there any really dark days or one particularly dark day that stands out that you have when you had your own production company? 
I like to say I'm pretty good on a bad day. Yeah. And I've had them for sure. Yeah. You know, production's tough and there are always days that are really rough. Things don't go well. Creative isn't quite as you hoped. The client might not be feeling it, which is always tough in my position because for myself, you know, one of my jobs is to oversee creative that's being executed on in the field, but also managing our client to make sure they're really getting what they want. So if the client's not happy, that really weighs heavily on me. Uh, I deal with a lot of rejection, you know, so like there are days where we put our heart and soul into an idea that we're developing or selling that might not sell. And that can be really rough because developing a show isn't a couple of days or weeks. It's often months and months of development where you really, really push for something. Mm. But look, I've had days where I've been in bubbles in Las Vegas making shows <laughs> and things don't go well and you're like, oh, it's exhausting. So yeah, there, there are tough days. Yeah. I'm thinking from a mental health perspective, I think the hardest thing with production is working out when th when everyone's saying, no, this isn't going to work, mm. how you get yourself out of a hole. Mm. And we've been in holes before, whether it's a financial hole, a creative hole, or an execution hole, mm. like they're pretty dark days. Yeah. But but I tend to find like I'm pretty good at shaking it off the next one, the mm. next day. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's, uh, it's huge having that resilience as you move forward with those different elements. Was there a concept that you had for a show that never got made where you were like, wow, I would just love to do this one day or just <laughs> never never could find a good home for it. Did anything like that ever happen? I don't want to tell you. Yeah, yeah, you got to keep it in the chamber just in case. It might pop up again sometime. Because <laughs> it's true, I do have that bank of ideas yeah. and there's a couple in my head which I'm not going to say. You're like Eminem with the scrapbooks of lyrics. It might, yeah, be, yeah. it might be a song one day. But you never know. Because like, and I, in fact, I had dinner with someone last night who pitched me an idea that they've had in their head forever and I won't say what it is either. But I was like, it could work. <laughs> It could work because my industry is so much about timing. I think like a lot of industries, if the timing's right and the creative's right and the idea's right and the team's right, you know, it could go. A big part of your work, as you've mentioned already, uh, is that you go into very renowned networks and you pitch them this dream world mm. and get them quite literally to, to buy into that. What do you do? How do you prepare in terms of um, making sure you give yourself the best chance of a yes at the end of that pitch? That's a good point. I always like to say, you know, you want your pitch to be irresistible. But our strategy is we're very targeted with our approach to development and sales. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not the sort of person who will develop a thousand things, pitch them all in the hope that, you know, one or two will stick. You know, people say throw a lot of shit at the wall. I used to say that. I don't, I don't, I don't love that saying so much because what I think works best is finding something you truly believe in, giving it the pressure test, and then when you do go into pitch, it's all about preparing the pitch and it's about the materials and obviously it's about the creative too. So for us and for me, if I'm going to pitch something, I really will want to really, really will think about how I present it. Mm. I'll think about the materials that I'll take into the room and I'll think from a network perspective, you know, why are they going to buy this now? So... My point being, I'll rehearse, I'll practice, I'll pressure test. And when I go in to pitch something, I think the materials are always really, really good. Mm. And I think our clients know that. Like when we go in to pitch something, it's not a half-baked idea or just a piece of paper or, or just a one line. You've built up the runs on the board now. Yeah, built up the runs on the board. And, I, and you know, I say to our team that, you know, it's not that we have to sell every show but you always want the network to have you back for the next pitch mm. because I want them to go, oh, Wes is coming in. Mm. 
you know, let's hear what he's got. He's always got a good pitch. Yeah. Also, you mentioned there putting your, yourself in the network shoes, such a big one. Uh, you mentioned pressure tests as well. Can you take us through anything that's involved in that even more broadly or conceptually, what, what it looks like to pressure test an idea? Well, there's a few things in what I do. It's like, you know, if it's an idea, like, can it really be made? Because yeah. I get pitched ideas and you're like, well, can you do that? You know, so it's like, okay, can it be made is one. Is it a show that I would make? Yes or no? You know, like I don't do crime shows. So if someone, if I was coming in pitching a crime doc series, people would be like, oh, what? Hey? But it's something like, you know, if it's a big competition show, like, yeah, that's a show that we make. We make holy moly. So like that's a world that makes sense for us. Yeah. And then by pressure test, I mean, with a lot of our shows, they're built around formats. So it's like, how does the format work? Mm. So that when I pitch you the idea and they go, great, love it. How does it work? I can concisely walk them through what an episode would look like. Mm in a way that makes sense and they'll go, yeah, that that's really smart, mm. you know. So mm. so that's what I mean by pressure test. You're doing some incredible work at Eureka now with the team. What are you, what are you most excited about for the future? Whew. So Eureka is an amazing company founded by Chris Colvner and Paul Franklin who are two of my dearest friends but also um, my bosses and are um, amazing, amazing people to work with. Like Chris is, you know, one of the most talented creative execs I've ever met and Paul is one of the most gifted producers that I've ever worked with and I've learned a lot from both of them. I'm excited for the future. I mean, we've been around for seven years with Eureka and I think it's got a really great future ahead. We've had huge shows on, you know, ABC, on Fox. We've had success. You know, Netflix, HBO Max are great partners of ours, Discovery as well. We're making some really great formats at the moment. We do Farmer Wants a Wife in Australia, which is a really fantastic series. I'm excited about The Real Love Boat coming out on CBS and Network 10. But for me, it's like, how do we keep making big, broad entertainment shows that cut through? Because mm. in the media landscape, yes, there are so many buyers, but it's how do you break through the noise? How do you make a show that people want to come and see at a certain time on the week, in the week, you know, if it's on a network, for example, or if it's a show for a streamer, like how do you get it to break through so that people are talking about it in their day-to-day -day life? So I'm excited to find the next big hit and I'm excited to build on our IP to make more shows but also make them better so that, you know, so that Eureka is making shows for a very long time. How do you determine something global versus something that might be uh, require like a local component? Yeah. Well, typically like a format will have more chance of being a global product mm -hmm. or something that you could replicate in multiple areas. I mean, a good example might be, you know, take Australian Idol. Mm -hmm. You know, Australian Idol happens in Australia with Australian talent and largely Australian judges, singing competition show, start with, you know, 50 people audition, one winner at the end. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing about that being a format is you can do that in the US, you can do it in the UK. I mean, the format's probably been replicated in 20 countries, maybe 50 countries around the world. Mm -hmm. I'd have to check. So that's the idea of something that globally could work in so many territories for local versions. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, another show like, say, Big Crazy Family Adventure, mm -hmm is harder to replicate on a global scale because, you know, we don't have a Bruce Kirkby and his family in every country that we can do the exact same trip for. Mm. So what I look for is what are those big global formats that could work in the US or work in Australia or work in the UK? And then we can go, hey, here's the playbook. Mm. You can now replicate this in any country in the world because the idea in the format is really strong. Yeah. So it's about building that IP and being able to exploit that. So when you're on a winner, you just... Yep. Let the good times yep. roll. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you spoke at the Day One Mastermind recently. You shared the three most important attributes to your success, grit, positivity, 
and reliability being that you always deliver. Uh, how have those three attributes helped shape your career, grit, positivity, and, and reliability? Yeah. Grit is a big one for me. I've always had grit because it's not like I was handed a silver platter by any means. And when I started my exploration into television, I fought for everything, right? My first show, I scrapped away. I believed in it. I didn't make any money. I put every cent that I could get into the production. I was 27 when I sold it. And then I made the show and then we got season two up and then I sold another show. So it's like, for me, it's always like, I'm the guy that's happy to put in the work. Uh, and I'm actually there making our shows too. So grit has been a huge part of my success or a, a, a huge, um, grit's been a huge, like sort of, uh, what would I say? Like a tool in my, in my toolbox because I actually now know how to make shows. Mm. It's not like I've, I just know how to pitch shows. Like I know how to make the things. Like I've I've done it day in day out, and I'm constantly surprised, and I'm always learning stuff. But but I really am in the trenches, which is great. What were the other two that I said? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, grit, grit is such a such a big one. I often say on this show that the biggest two attributes I believe are resourcefulness, oh, yeah. being that you can acquire whatever you want, and then resilience to keep going in the face of adversity. And grit and resilience are obviously yep. very tightly interlinked. Yep. Yep. Positivity being positive mental attitude, yep. such a big one. And yep. um, reliability, that track record of continuing to deliver. That's a big one. Like yeah. positivity is pretty straightforward. Like I'm a pretty positive guy. I want to succeed. I actually want to see friends succeed. I want to see people around me succeed. And I want to be around successful people mm -hmm. as well and positive people. So that's pretty self-explanatory. And then when it comes to being able to deliver and re being reliable, that's a huge part of my industry because, you know, there's that saying you're only ever as good as your last show. Yeah. In the mafia they say you're only as good as your last envelope. <laughs> <laughs> That's, <laughs> funny. That's funny. That's funny. That's funny. That's funny. Uh, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, we've got to be a few yeah. questions about yeah. that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I always make every show thinking like, hey, I want to get it to a season two, so I want mm. it to be as successful as possible, but I also want our client to be happy with the product. I want to see it succeed. And I want them to buy another show from mm. me as well. And so I've always thought of my career in terms of longevity. Mm. And yes, I want to find the next big hit, but I also want them, them being clients, networks, partners, to continue to want to work with us. And I need to deliver in order for them to yeah. do that. Playing that long game, rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Huge. I like that. A question I like to ask all the guests on this show is, on your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? You're fucking good at what you do. Mm. Believe in yourself. Mm. I think because I, I, that's the thing. It's like it's, 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 it sounds a little cocky, I suppose, but like when I've doubted myself or I've been up against it, I, I actually know that I'm really good at what I do. Mm. And I actually am, you know, and this is going to sound really over the top, but like I think I'm one of the best people in the industry at what I do because mm. I, I know how to make shows. I'm a straight shooter. I'm creative and I like to inspire the people around me who are also creative most of the time to do the very best that they can. Uh, and I think that's a real skill and it's something I've been working on for 20 years mm. is a, making shows. A confidence in yourself, such a great leadership trait as well. Yeah. We Because sometimes you have da days where you're like, am I just doing everything wrong? Like yeah. am I an idiot? And I'm not, I don't think I'm an idiot. Yeah. But like in times that are tough, it is nice to remind yourself that, you know, you're very good at what you do yeah. and believe in yourself and you'll work out a way to get out of the hole. Mm. You know, Dr. Mike Gervais, who's one of the top um, psychologists for uh, elite performers, he actually mentioned something very similar. He just 
switched gears the moment I asked him that question. He said something very, very similar. I forget what episode he's on. We'll include a link to that in the show notes, what Dr. Mike Duvet shared. But I think that's brilliant. And you can you can see the emotion and the sincerity when you say that as well, which I think is really important. Before we move into the win the day rocket round, i got one question for you. You've got a beautiful family. You've got a wife, three kids, and a great career. What would it take to put all that on hold to spend another 100 days in the Big Brother house? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just tell me when. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes, sometimes as a parent. <laughs> Hang on, so I get to go away from my family, away from the kids, and I have 100 days on my own in a house? Where do I sign? Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, it would take a bit. It would take a bit. Uh, I don't know why I would do that, to be honest, yeah. apart from just the time off. Um, or unless someone backed the truck up with cash and I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> Big Brother House, I feel like it's a young person's game. It is, it is, it is. It's like bachelor parties. I think I would, <laughs> only, only reason I would go in there professionally is like I didn't understand how to play the game yeah. and having worked in the industry for the last 18, 20 years, 18 years, uh, there's a strategy to it that I didn't quite understand. So I'd like to do it again in terms of thinking how you could really play the game and win it. Play it like Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's now move to the win the day rocket round. Ten questions for some quick answers. You up for this one, Wes? Let's do it. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? Perfect practice makes perfect performance. Love it. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Hmm. Morning coffee. <laughs> Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Enjoy your 20s. Oh, 18-year-old self. Let me think about that for one second. You know what's funny? When I was 18 and when I was in my early 20s, I kind of – was fortunate enough that I did a lot of things that I enjoyed. But what's the advice that I'd give? You know, 18-year-old self, my advice is keep traveling, enjoy your 20s, 20s are for learning, 30s are for earning, mm. so enjoy it. Yeah. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Oh, I don't gift books. That's a good idea. I'd like to gift more mm. books. Mm. Um, or a book you've read recently that you enjoyed? Wes actually gets a big shout-out in Blue Sky Kingdom from Bruce Kirkby. So if anyone hasn't read that book, that is a fantastic book. When you hear Wes mentioned, that's this Wes here. It's, it's, a, it's a great one. I know. I sent that to all my family for uh, Christmas last year. <laughs> I actually sent it to a bunch of people for Christmas Did too. you? Yeah, oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I actually – I don't read a lot of books, but I read The New York Magazine every week or The New Yorker. So um, I, what I do actually love I – I can't read the entire thing in a week, but if you pick a couple of articles to try and read. And then I'm at the age now where I like sharing the comics with my kids. Mm, so they don't nice. quite get the humor, but my kids every week want to read the comics from the New Yorker. So that's what I share. <laughs> nice. Good bonding experience. Uh, number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Yes. And I'm still working on it is that I don't have to do and control everything. Mm. Learning to let things go so that other people can do their jobs is something that I've struggled with because I did start my own company. I'm very hands-on. I like things to be done in a certain way, but I'm learning that with great people around you, I can help with creative and tone and direction, but enable people around me to do what they're highly skilled in. Yeah, let them be great with their skills. That is such a big, you know, letting go of that controlling thing. That's something I really struggle with as well. That's, yep. a, that's, that's well said. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? That you do learn from it. Actually, one thing I've learned from failure is often you rarely fail on your own. You're often failing with a team or you might be failing for a client or you're failing because something didn't go the way you planned. I've found that when you're honest 
and collaborative that when you do fail, you normally come out of that failure with stronger bonds with your clients and that team than you had going into it. Mm. So failures are absolutely part of the journey and I've had many of them. But when I've come out of them, often I've built stronger relationships from them. And that transparency and communication that you and I have spoken about offline before is, is such a good asset that you have as well. Uh, number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? I don't know why Elvis came to mind. It's like I'm in my 50s. Elvis I person. saw an Elvis impersonator at a party on the weekend. I'm not kidding. Out of nowhere, I was in the pool and this Elvis impersonator <laughs> comes out, starts busting out Elvis's greatest hits for an hour. It was a very American <laughs> experience. That's funny. <laughs> Um, who would I like to have a conversation with? Oh, yeah, this is going to sound lame, but I'd love to see my pa again. I like my, my, my mum's dad was someone who just taught me a lot about being a gentleman, about being a man. And he taught me how to sail and it was great to have a beer. Like, you know, when I was 16, he'd, you know, pour a beer and I'd have half it. He'd have, have the other half and we'd just chat. Mm. So I'd love to catch up with him. But famous people. Oh God, mate, that's a tough one. You got some many got any ideas? I don't need to be famous. Yeah, I think that's I think that's actually a really good one. Yeah. I'd say it'd be my pa then. Yeah, nice someone and, that nice and wholesome. Yeah, someone yeah. that means a lot to you. Well, someone who like I don't think I ever took it for granted the time I spent with him, and you know he died twenty years ago, mm. but just was really um, influential on my teenage years mm. in terms of helping to groom me to be a good citizen. Someone we well, did an episode recently with my dad actually, and in a line of that, I mentioned that being around the right people who see the potential in you when you don't see it in yourself, yep. whoever that is such yep. a big, a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? <sighs> iPhone is actually a surprisingly <laughs> That's the first one. thing I thought of. Yeah. I think I might have to change that question. I, feel like I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm addicted to my iPhone. Like yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly on it. So I'd say it's definitely my iPhone yeah. in terms of day-to-day. My team helps run my diary and calendar. Mm. And it's not because it sounds a little hoity-toity, but it's like in my job, I constantly have to juggle between development, which is developing, selling new shows, mm. and current programming, which is the shows that we're making. Mm. So it's like I constantly need to shift gears as to where my focus needs to be and putting it in the right place. Because with creative industries, like when you're when I'm in 100% and I'm deep, I can get a lot done. But when you are juggling several projects throughout a day, mm. you know, without planning your day well and your calendar, it's hard to fully engage. Yeah, your energy so, spread a bit thin. So I'd say it's my iPhone and then it's also my calendar. Yeah. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. I mean, by the time you've already ticked <laughs> Antarctica off, it's hard to <laughs> – uh, Antarctica and Everest, mind you. Yeah, you've already got a couple of them done. I've always wanted to swim the English Channel. Yeah. So that's a big, hairy, audacious dream. As and you he could know. actually do it too. I couldn't. Wes could. Wes is a very good swimmer. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, I do ocean water swimming here in Santa Monica and I absolutely love it and I've been doing it for years. Um, you know, we swim, you know, two miles in the pool. I'll do three three miles with a session. But, you know, I think the English Channel is something like 23 or 33 Ks. It's a long swim. But I, I when I was in my 20s, I said, oh, by the time I'm 40, I want to swim the English Channel. Mm. And now that I'm just about there, you know, I'm, by the time I'm 60, I want to swim the English Channel. So that's <laughs> do they like do it in a cage or do they just do it out in the – No cage. No, no sharks there? No, no cage. Yeah. No wetsuit. You know, you, and you butter yourself up with some sort of stuff and then it's a, yeah. it's an overnight swim. They normally start like in the early mornings, like 1 or 2 a.m. and yeah. you leave from, you know, the, the, the coast of the UK over to France. Amazing. I'd like to do that. Yeah, get a Cronenberg as soon as you get to France. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? Your morning swim? Oh. Um, it's, it's my morning routine. Mm. Yeah. Like I come in 
so charged to start my day. I've always been a morning person, but starting with a good swim or a bit of exercise, I like Wes time before I start anything. I don't get on my phone or on my emails as soon as I wake up. I try and have that bit of time in my day to do something active. And I find that when I do that, I'm at my best. Yeah. Clears your head. Yeah. Like yeah. I'll come into the office bouncing, ready to win. And I love win the day because, you know, every day is a, is a battle and you do want to come out of it having a few wins. Mm. Uh, and I know that when I start my day like that and I come into the office and I see our team, like I'm ready to go. Yeah. Well, make sure you connect with Wes on LinkedIn at Wes Denning and on Twitter at Wes Denning. All that and more will be linked in the show notes. Always great to see you, mate. Thanks great for coming on the Win you. the Day show. Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate it. Have me back. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview. As you heard, our guests love to hear positive feedback no matter where they're at in their careers. So share a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway so our guests know they made a difference in your life today. If you're a business owner and want a copy of the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast, go to mistakes.wearepodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. It's a free download and we'll show you everything you need to do to start getting a massive ROI from your podcast so you can help a lot more people, get recognized as the authority in your industry and scale your business faster than ever. And if you haven't already, hit the subscribe or follow button so you can get access to episodes like this one as soon as they are released. The Win The Day podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.